I want to read you a piece of scripture this morning that uh, perhaps on the surface is slightly more challenging. Um, the great thing about teaching through the Bible, teaching through books of the Bible, is that pastors and preachers can't dodge the difficult texts. And, and uh, we, we have to teach them all. And, um, but I think this morning there's great, there's great life and encouragement in this uh, passage from Ephesians that we're going to read together. Um, and I, I want to read to you from verse 21 of chapter 5 through to verse 9 of chapter 6. So chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's kind of the, the guiding line, the plumb line of what we're saying today. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. <laughs> so, 
We're getting down to it now and uh, to the sharp end of Paul's letter. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about um, how Paul has taken us through this letter. And uh, we've watched three movements as we've unpacked this book. We've watched Paul describing who we are. Uh, we've, we've watched him highlighting and uh, in, in yellow, highlighting who we are and whose we are, focusing on our identity and the fact of what we, what we sang this morning as we started our service, that we are ransomed and we are healed and we are restored and we are forgiven. And Paul starts there, he starts by reminding the Ephesian believers and everybody else who read this letter, this circular letter, of who we are and whose we are. And that was the foundation that he laid for the first three chapters of, of what we know as the chapters of, of this letter. But then uh, we noticed also that he spent quite a bit of time focusing on what they were thinking and how they were taught and, and that they had to think right as well. They had to, they had to grasp. And we, we considered um, the fact that Paul had prayed extensively throughout this letter as he bursts into prayer for these believers, he doesn't pray that they will have these things. He, will, he prays that they will understand that they have these things, that they will grasp that they are children of God, that they are forgiven, that they are loved greatly by God, that, that they'll understand this in a very, very deep experiential way, that, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they might see and know and grasp how high and deep and wide is the love of Christ for them. He prays for them that they'd be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they might know Christ better, uh, and that they might know the hope to which he has called them, and they might know the glorious inheritance that they have in all of the saints, that, that they might know and understand these things. So that's the second movement that we've looked at as we've been reading this letter together, that it's not only who we are and whose we are, but it's understanding that and grasping it. And Paul returns them and says, look, this is how you were taught Christ. This is how you learned Christ. This is what you've learned. This is what you've heard. You're not, not ignorant. You're not ignorant anymore. You're not in the darkness of understanding like, like the Gentiles are. You've got to live differently now. And then we get to the point of the letter which we're in now where Paul starts to tell them how to act to one another. And we said, really, you can't get to that bit if you don't do the other two bits first. If you don't know who you are, if you don't know how much you are loved by God, if you don't understand and grasp and experience this love of Christ, you'll struggle very greatly to live out the truths as Paul starts to tell them how to act. And the verb that is throughout these last three chapters of Ephesians is peripateo, to walk. This is how I want you to walk. I want you to walk like a Christian. I want you to live like a Christian. And last week, Paul unpacked for us a the passage before this one, and he talked to us about walking. He said that we're supposed to walk in love. We're supposed to walk in purity. We're supposed to walk in the light. We're supposed to walk in wisdom, and we're supposed to walk in the Spirit. Uh, be filled with the Spirit, Paul says, and then do this stuff. And so um, that's kind of where we're joining the passage this morning as we as we read here, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so I want to, as I, as I looked at this message again this morning, I came up with some, some S's as an aid memoir, as a, as, some, as a way to help me and you remember some of these points. So the first thing I want to think about is the source. 
of all of this. The source, if we're going to look at, we're getting down to our relationships here, husbands and wives, parents and children, the workplace, how we live out our faith in the workplace, how we live out our faith in the home. And so the first thing I want to think about is the source of all of this. If you're going to be a better husband, if you're going to be a a better wife, and living as a wife the way God designed you and made you to live as a wife, if you're going to be a better dad or a mum, or if you're going to be a better employee or employer, then then the source of all this is found as we pedal backwards in in chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. (laughs) That's where it's at. Be filled with the Spirit. That's what we've been praying for this morning. That's what we've been singing uh, in our emptiness, asking to be filled with the Spirit of God. And the, the, the format of this text is one command and then four present participles that come out of this command, four tributaries of this river of the Spirit of God. So the, it, the command that we get is be filled with the Spirit of God. That's what God That's what Paul writes to these Christians. And then he goes on to say what happens when and as we are filled with the Spirit. He gives them four present participles. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As as we've been doing this morning, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. That's the first present participle as you are filled with the Spirit addressing one another. The second one is singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Uh, Be filled with the Spirit and then sing. Sing and make music as we've been doing this morning and, uh, and living out the Spirit of God. The third command is on the back of being filled with the Spirit is giving thanks always and for everything to God. And the fourth command that we're picking up on today That doesn't quite come out in some of the translations, but it's another present participle, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is the fourth tributary of being filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's the source. If you want to find tributaries of rivers that you go back to the source, the source is the Spirit of God. And as we are filled with the Spirit of God, then we will sing and we will worship and we will make music and we will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another and we'll submit to one another. You try and do this without being filled with the Spirit of God and you'll miss out on the source. The source is the Spirit. What about the stimulus then? That's the source, the stimulus. The spur is out of reverence for Christ. That's what it says. Submit to one another or submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We do this because we revere Christ. We do this to the praise of his glory. If you remember earlier on in Ephesians, in the first section of the letter, the uh, repetitive phrase to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit was, all of this is to the praise of his glory. And that, that's the motivation of Paul. He, he says we've been called 
to the praise of his glory. We've been chosen and adopted and sealed with the Spirit of God, and it's all to the praise of God's glory. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we are here. We are here to worship God. We are made to worship God. We are created to worship God. We are at our most fulfilled when we worship God, when we are in relationship with him. And so the stimulus for submitting to one another, the stimulus, the spur for husbands and wives relating well to one another, or parents and children, or employers and employees, is that it's out of reverence for Christ. And a phrase that comes up nine times in this passage, one way or the other, in different ways, is as to the Lord. You do this as to the Lord. You, you relate to your wife you relate to your husband as to the Lord, to your children as to the Lord, to your employer as to the Lord. And that is the stimulus, that's, that's the, the telos, that's the purpose, that's what we're aiming for, that's what motivates us in this relational kind of living it out uh, of this passage is it's out of reverence for Christ, it's as to the Lord in our home and in our workplace. The setting, if that's the source and the stimulus, the setting is our home and our workplace. Now, there's, there's elements of this letter that are soaring poetry. Uh, there's, there's, there's long, long Greek flowing phrases. There's, there's beautiful poetry that Paul has entered into. There's the doxology, there's, there's praise, there's, there's beautiful writing. And we've, we're moving from that now to to the workplace. We're moving from there, from the, the praise of his glory, from the realm of heavenly realities, from all of this beautiful phraseology. We're moving to the kitchen table and to the bedroom and to the office place and to reading your kids' stories at night and changing their nappies and dealing with difficult teenagers who are driving us to despair and worry and and teenagers dealing with difficult parents <laughs> who uh, get on your nerves. And, and it's, it's, it's taking all of this beautiful poetry and, and to the praise of his glory and these doxologies. And it's moving it down to the rain and the drizzle of a Thursday afternoon at home. It's living it out. What is the setting of all of this stuff? It's the setting is when you go home today and you have lunch together. The setting is Monday morning over the bran flakes. The setting is, is dealing with the family life and challenges of that and, and dealing with that difficult boss or that difficult employee and, and living it out. This, this is faith that's grounded like, like a lightning rod that takes electricity and takes the power and the, and the glory of all of this stuff and grounds it that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's grounding this great theology, these words about God, and, and he's starting to apply them into our everyday lives and how we live them. There's a, there's a character I've mentioned before in Charles Dickens' novel, Bleak House, called Mrs. Jellyby. And, and there's the title of this chapter about Mrs. Jellyby is, is Telescopic Philanthropy. That means doing good at a distance. And the way that Charles Dickens describes Mrs. Jellyby is that she is very good at doing good at a distance. She is in love with 
a, a, a perceived mission to the people of Borea Bulagar uh, in this chapter, this uh, fictional African nation. And Mrs. Jalabi has got grandiose notions of serving the people of Borea Bulagar and raising monies and, and doing great things in this great cause. And yet we read about Mrs. Jalabi that she neglects her children <laughs> and she neglects her husband and she neglects her household and her household is dirty and neglected. Our children are ill-fed. And her philanthropy, her doing good, is always telescopic. It's always at a distance. It's always the grand scheme. And yet it's never earthed in the daily realities of her life. And Eugene Peterson, as he writes about Mrs. Jellaby and telescopic philanthropy and Bleak House, says that we are all susceptible to Borea Bulagar moments. We are all susceptible to feeling that we could serve God greatly and grandly at a distance in some distant nation with some great cause. And yet what Paul is saying here is that the setting for living to the glory of God, to the praise of his glory, the setting for you and for me is in your marriage and with your kids, and in your workplace, and in your Monday mornings, and your drizzly Thursday afternoons. You don't have to have some grand cause in that sense, but it is from this soaring poetry to pedestrian prose. Brother Lawrence, who wrote a, who was a, 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 a practicing monk, um, served God for much of his life in the kitchens of his monastery, washing up pots and pans. And he wrote a little tract that was called Practicing the Presence of God. And in this little tract, this little book, Brother Lawrence would contemplate that as he washed the pans and scrubbed the pans, he would practice the presence of God. He would wash and scrub the pans to the glory of God. He would serve the food to the monks to the glory of God. He would do everything that he did to the glory of God. He would practice daily the presence of God. And you may feel that changing nappies or reading stories to your kids or, or cooking a meal for your wife or, or being a great employee and turning up early for work and going the extra mile and you may feel that that's not greatly to the glory of God but that, that is to the glory of God that is practicing the presence of God that is the setting of living out our life to the glory of God and practicing his presence in a daily way and we don't need those Borea Bulagar moments of Mrs. Jellopy. We need to focus on, and what Paul is doing is here on these, what Luther called the house tafel, and the house rules is, is focusing on the everyday. That's the setting. This people, in this place, in this community. And as I've read through a lot of the work of Eugene Peterson over the years as his local pastor, uh, very much said that, that our, our, our living out of our faith is in the local geography. It's in this place, with this people, at this time. We don't grow in isolation. We don't mature as Christians in isolation. We do it in community. We do it with one another. We do it together. This is where we live out our faith. It's got to work here with this people with the person sitting next to you. It's got to live and, and, and work here. It's got to work in our homes and in our workplaces and in our everyday lives. This is the setting. 
And Paul's teaching here in Ephesians is towards unity and it's towards purity and it's towards maturity. It's towards a oneness under Christ. And, and all of this calling that, is, that he's addressing to these believers, it's got to be lived out in the local. It's got it's to work in the drizzle. It's got to work on a Monday morning. That's the setting and that's where Paul is going here as he addresses husbands and wives and uh, parents and children. So what, what's he saying here? He's saying, wives, he's saying, first of all, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he says, wives, and the, the word here in, in my version, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The, the word submit is not in the Greek um, because it's referring back to verse 21, submitting to one another, wives to your husbands. Um, so it's a continuation of that. Um, and for the, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So at this point, the men in, are all saying, oh, men, preach it, brother. And, um, but not so fast. <laughs> the standard, the example here that we are set is, is Christ. Because then Paul reciprocates and he says, in the same way husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and presenting her as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as, as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves her himself so the standard that we're set men and husbands is Christ we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church and how did Christ love the church how did he lead well we read in Philippians chapter 2 your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is what Christ's leadership looked like for the church. And we sang it this morning. You hung on a cross for us. You are an awesome God. This is who you are, Jesus. This is what you did for us. The creator of the universe, you hung on a cross for us. This is how you led us. This is the way you ministered to us. This is what you did for the church. You hung on a cross for us. You submitted yourself even to death on a cross. You, the creator of the universe. You who counted equality with God, not something to be grasped. How did you handle such power and authority, Jesus? Well, you humbled yourself to death on a cross for us. That's what it looks like to lead in authority. That's how we are to serve and lead and oversee and watch over our wives in the same way as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or how else did Jesus lead? Well, what about John chapter 13, verses 1 to 5? What did Jesus' leadership look like? It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave the world. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. 
And the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus and Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God. He was returning to God. He knew who he was. He knew the authority that he had. He knew that all things were under his feet. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What does Jesus' authority look like? What does Jesus' authority over all power, what what does it look like for everything to be under Jesus' feet, Jesus who knows who he is and where he's come from? What does it look like to love your wife as Christ has loved the church? It looks like that. It looks like kneeling down and washing feet. And so there is a mutual submission here between husbands and wives. And there are many other passages like this that we could go into. But I like what Scott McKnight says. He says, if a man or a woman frames his or her relationship to a spouse or to children in terms of the word authority, you can bet your sweet bippy that the relationship is not what it should be. I'm not sure what the Greek is for sweet bippy, but I think I understand what he's saying. (laughs) Wherever a husband or wife or a father or a mother determines or dictates their relationship in the sense of authority, you can bet your sweet bippy that relation is not what it should be. Or how about this from Tony Campolo? I don't agree with everything he writes or says, but I like this. The sociologist Willard Waller, he writes, and you wonder what kind of parents with the last name of Waller would name a kid Willard. (laughs) The sociologist Willard Waller (laughs) discovered what he called the principle of least interest. In simple language, the principle boils down to this. In any relationship, whoever loves the most exercises the least power. And whoever exercises the most power is exercising the least love. Imagine a marriage in which the husband doesn't really love his wife very much, but she loves him intensely. Now ask the question, given that arrangement, who is able to dictate the terms of that relationship? Who calls the shots? Who holds the power? She will do anything for him. And since he doesn't care much about her, he is in a position of control. Whenever I do a marriage seminar, Tony Campolo says at a church, there's always some guy who stands up and asks, who is supposed to be the head of the house? That's the real question. Who's supposed to run things in the home? I always feel like saying, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't ask such a stupid question. A Christian never asks, who's going to be the master? The Christian always asks, who's going to be the servant? If you're a Christian, you don't ask who's going to be a number one. You ask who's going to be the last. When you ask a question like that, you're asking the same stupid question that James and John raised with the Lord when they said, Master, when you come into your kingdom, who will sit on your right hand and who will sit on your left? Who will have the power? I ought to say to such a man, if you really loved your wife, you wouldn't want to dominate her with your power. Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to give up his power and take upon himself the form of a slave. 
And if a man loves his wife, he should be ready to give up his power and become her servant. And conversely, the wife is instructed to be submissive to her husband. But what wife would have difficulty becoming submissive to a man that defined himself as her slave? The ideal marriage is one in which the husband says to his wife, Honey, my dreams, my hopes, my aspirations mean nothing to me. If I can help you become all that you can be, I'll sacrifice everything I am for that. In return, she says, oh no, I'm ready to sacrifice my hopes and my dreams and my aspirations to enable you to become all that you can be. And he says, oh no, and they have their first fight. (laughs) It's the only argument that Christians are supposed to have. For the Bible tells us to outdo one another in love, with each esteeming the other better than himself. So what is the example, what is the standard that we are set in this mutual submission? The standard that we are set is Christ. It is Christ, as Christ loved the church. But it's also a call to the wives to respect their husbands. And this was written in a time of the new Roman women who didn't respect their husbands, who were promiscuous, who put down their husbands. And you can see today in society somewhat, as you watch sitcoms, as you watch societies, you watch cultural kind of commentary, husbands are often put down, men are often made to look stupid, (laughs) as if they know nothing, (laughs) the wife's always got the answers. (laughs) And the Bible says, wives, respect your husbands, don't put them down publicly. You know, lift them up and big them up and, uh, and always respect them. So there's a mutual respect here. There's a mutual submission. There's a mutual uh, serving one another, outdoing one another. So that's the standard that we are set. And, and, and the, the side effects, the side effects that we find in this passage is that this kind of love, it makes us more beautiful, You see, Jesus loves the church like this. He, he, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The kind of love that acts like this is, is a love that makes beautiful. The love of Jesus is transformative. Jesus' love transforms the church. The love of Jesus changes us. The aim of Jesus is to present the church without spot or wrinkle or blemish. He loves the church. He loves his body. And in the same way that this love of Christ transforms us, and makes us beautiful in, in, in his time. It's a transforming love. You know, when you see someone who's in love and they are radiant, they're radiating with a sense of in-loveness or being loved. As we are loved by God and as we know and experience the love of God, we begin to radiate with the love of Christ. And as we love one another, husbands, as you love your wives in practical ways, as you love her in loving ways as you as you do things that are loving for you will find her to be more lovable (laughs) as wives as you love your husbands in the same way as you do loving acts you transform that person as they are loved (laughs) by you 
You make them more lovely. <laughs> you make them more lovable. You make them more beautiful <laughs> in the radiance of your love. And as we love one another, this is what we do. We transform each other. And sometimes people are not very lovable. They are difficult and they are ornery and they are thorny and they are not that easy to love. But as we love one another, as we practice love and live out this love and this great theology and the rain and the drizzle of church life, we transform one another into the love of Christ and we experience the love of God. It is a side effect of loving like this, of serving one another like this. And finally, we see the specifics. Paul goes on and he talks specifics. He talks about husbands and wives. He talks about children and parents. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Je uh, Beth, just write that down in your notebook. Just <laughs> Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment that it may go well with you. Children are supposed to do what their parents tell them to do. But what Paul did then, which was very countercultural, he turned it round and he said, parents, because <laughs> the parents had all the power in Roman culture, the pater familias, the head of the family, the dad in this patriarchal society had all the power. He said, parents, don't frustrate your children. Don't drive them to anger. Don't don't do that, but raise them up in the instruction and the love of God, in the wisdom of God. There's, there's great emphasis there on raising our children in the Lord. Nikki and Silla Lee write about parenting and, and the challenges of it, really. And they say that in, in, a, in a question and answer session, uh, somebody asked them, is it possible to have young children and still be passionate and on fire for God. <laughs> and parents know that sometimes that's a great challenge. As it's been said, I didn't backslide, I just had children. But one of the greatest acts of discipleship that we have is to raise our children in the instruction of the Lord, in the training and instruction of the Lord. And this is not something to be outsourced, parents to Kids Zone or to the youth team. This is something that we are called to do ourselves. And some of the greatest acts of discipleship that we can do as we are called to make disciples is, is to read our kids' bedtime stories, is, is to pray with them, is to kneel with them. We, we, see, we see this in the life of Timothy, don't we? Um, Timothy was raised by godly parents and godly grandparents uh, raised in the training and instruction. This covers discipline, it, it covers care, it, it covers instruction. So, but Paul writes to Timothy, as, as for you continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. And then, where do you learn this from? Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, I've been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Mums and dads, are your children learning prayer and a love of the Bible and a love of Jesus from you? Do they see you reading and praying and spending time with Jesus? It's your job to teach them and instruct them and nourish them 
And it's the greatest act of discipleship that you can do. And then he goes into the workplace and he speaks of, in that setting, slaves and masters, of course, uh, in a Roman society of which there were many, many slaves. But he, he speaks about how we relate to those in authority over us. He, he uses phrases like with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, not by the way of eye service. Don't just be a good employer or employee when your boss is watching. <laughs> Don't just work well when somebody's watching, but work with a sincere heart, work when nobody's watching. Don't do it as people pleasers and doing the will of God from the heart. And Paul is quite specific here as he speaks about the way we should work, the kind of employees and employers we should be, um, and gets into the specifics of it. So this is Paul taking all of this great theology and he's trying to ground it now in these household rules with husbands and wives and parents and children and colleagues and workplace situations in the home and the workplace. But let me take you back to the start, which is the source of all of this. The source of all of this is be filled with the Spirit of God. I was running this week, and as I ran, I noticed spray-painted on the floor the word Zoe, Z-O-E. And the word Zoe means the breath or the life, the eternal life of God, the Spirit of God. And so as I saw this word Zoe spray-painted on the pavement, as I ran along, I started just to hum to myself, the old song, breathe on me, breath of God, <laughs> fill me with life and you. <laughs> that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. Now, I don't think for a moment that there's a theologian out there that meant Zoe to mean <laughs> what I meant it to mean in that moment. But breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life in you. And we've been singing this morning. We were very touched by the presence of God and by asking God to fill us with his spirit and fill me with life in you. Be filled with the spirit. Be filled with the spirit. That's the source. The tributaries are what we're looking at here this morning. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart. Make music. Make melody to God in your heart. Give thanks to God. You know, give thanks to him and worship him. Be grateful and submit to one another. Outdo one another in submission. Husbands, wives, parents, children, youngsters, <laughs> colleagues, employees, employers. Let's do all of this out of reverence for Christ as to the Lord as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we're all susceptible to Mrs. Jellaby moments. We feel that we've got to serve God in the grandiose and the distant, the great cause. 
We're all susceptible to the Boreabulaga moments of life. <laughs> but your word is clear, Lord, that this works in our homes. It works at the kitchen table and in the bedroom and in the office and the factory floor and the classroom. We pray, Lord, that we will be filled with your Holy Spirit. We will be touched with the example of Christ who did not current equality with God, something to be grasped, but Lord himself. And he even hung on a death and on a cross for us, died on a cross for us. And I pray in the same way that, Lord, we might be filled with the Spirit and we might submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.